One day in 2018, thousands of people logged onto their YouTube's accounts, scrolled through their recommendations, and found an interesting thumbnail. The black and white chromatic image of a Japanese girl in a bow tie. Like a lot of others, I clicked on it, and then heard this. If you were to scroll through the messages of that YouTube video of Maria Takeuchi's Plastic Love, you'd find bewildered comments, hundreds of them. I don't know why this was recommended to me, but I love it. Or maybe a year later, you're scrolling through TikTok and see this trend. They say any Japanese woman of a certain age will recognize this song. And then this place. Stay with me, Plastic Love and Stay With Me are examples of city pop a loosely defined genre from the late 70s and 80s Japan. They were breezy, jazzy, snappy tracks that enticed people with complex, syncopated rhythm, glitzy instrumentals, high production values, all invoking the feeling of being under the neon lights of a futuristic city. The genre had pretty much died out in Japan by the end of the 80s. But now, over 30 years later, the revival had been met with an awe-inducing confusion. What made the genre of music become such an internet staple 30 years later after its peak? Unlike other songs or movies that have enjoyed a revival, City Pop didn't become popular online because it was featured on a show or a movie or anything else. City Pop's revival is because of the medium itself. Because of the internet. How did this happen? Where did this revival come from? Why were people giving these recommendations all of a sudden? And where is the appeal of the genre coming from? I'm going to take a look at Plastic Love and Stay With Me, the backgrounds they emerged from, the history of their singers, and what their revival tells us about technology and nostalgia. Before we even get to the history behind City Pop, I want to draw your attention to something. You. Yes, you, listener. You are now listening to my voice. Whether you're sitting, whether you're walking around, driving, or engaged in any other activity, my voice is now following you. Don't worry, this isn't hypnosis. But think about this. The voice that you're listening to now no longer exists. By the time you're listening to my voice, I've already finished this episode. It's already been a while since I left my microphone. The episode has already been edited. And I am right now off doing something else while my voice is continuing in this recording. So I want to draw your attention to what a profoundly bizarre thing this is and how unique it is to our time. A few generations ago, this would have been completely unthinkable. Technology transformed our relationship to music. Whether that's for the better or worse is not something I'm interested in exploring. I just want to think about what that means to our relation to time and space. You see, the ability to listen to music was so deeply linked to time and space in a way I don't think most of us can grasp. Certainly not those who are listening to the ghost of my voice right now. It was so connected that Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard used going to the theater and listening to opera as examples for his philosophy of repetition. 19th century audiences like Kierkegaard couldn't just grab a record and listen to Mozart or Schubert whenever they wanted. He had to wait until a production of the opera would come to his town, or he would have to travel to another city where the opera was playing. This desperate wanting to relive the joy of listening to his favorite musical pieces was a motif for the philosophy of repetition, where the question is, can we truly repeat an experience? Going to the opera, different actors, different musicians, different states of mind, even a different seat, will ensure that the performance is never the same. 
Not long after his writing, recording technology brought music to the living room, concert halls, and other spaces. You can play music without having to bring all the band back together in the hopes that they would repeat the exact same performance. You can now have them play the song once, record it, and then literally repeat the same concert over and over. Time had been conquered, but not space. These old recording machines were usually big, bulky things. You would still be confined to a space. One of my favorite anecdotes is about a jazz singer who trained his music skills by going to a local diner, listening to a song on a jukebox, then running back home and trying to replay the piece he'd just listened to. The experience of listening was still firmly rooted in place. By the end of the 70s, space was also going to be conquered. Coincidentally, the story also involves opera. Sony co-founder Masaru Ibuka, the story goes, got an idea during a business trip. He wanted to listen to his favorite operas while he was on a plane to distract himself from the long flight and be transported into his own private musical world. He brought the idea to the company. The engineers and marketing team, it is said, hesitated at first. It didn't seem like a viable idea. Who would want to listen to music by themselves? But nevertheless, he insisted. And in 1979, the Walkman was created. I was born a few years after the Walkman was readily available. It's followed me for as long as I can remember. Having music in my ears while I watch the trees pass by through the car window during a long ride is an early memory. And the idea of carrying music wherever you go was always a given for as long as I've been conscious. So I can only faintly grasp how much of a game changer it was just a few years before me. When the Walkman first came out, it startled people. Some embraced the idea of having songs with them, turning their scrolls down the street into a movie scene with an accompanying soundtrack. Others were worried about the increasing erosion of public life, of shared culture, as everything became more personalized. There were safety concerns as well. Some parts of the world banned the Walkman while walking for fear that the listener, so absorbed in their own world, would fall down a manhole or get hit by a car. The Walkman was part of the many musical technologies coming out of Japan in the late 70s. A list of other musical inventions that revolutionized contemporary music. Improved car stereo technology, mixers, samplers, synthesizers, drum machines, and other electronic musical instruments. And Japan happily exported these new technologies all over the world. This was the secret behind their juggernaut economy an economy that rapidly increased urbanization as many moved to the big cities in hopes to get a share of that fortune. And this was the landscape that city pop flourished in. But let's rewind a bit. Japan, 1945, the end of the Second World War. The imperialistic and fascistic military dictatorship had been defeated, the country devastated by fire bombings and the dropping of two nuclear bombs. The American military had taken over. The occupation era, as this time is known, focused on rebuilding from this devastation. The younger generation searched for new cultural forms and the occupying forces were more than happy to present it to them. One new cultural import came through the radio. Japanese households all over tuned into the Far East Network, FEN for short, to listen to the newest and greatest hits of 40s America. The network had been established during the war across Asia, and it was now available for public consumption. People grew up under the influence of the new music genres like blues, rock, jazz, entering their consciousness and forming their musical education. 
anyone from that time who grew up to become a musician no doubt grew up listening to F.E.N. One thing about that time was that westernized music was sung exclusively in English, mostly covers. It was a way to keep the influence at arm's length. Singing American pop songs in Japanese, well, it just felt inappropriate. One person who disagreed with this point of view was Haruomi Hosono. Hosono will go on to become one of the most influential figures in Japanese music, beyond Japan even. His experiments with electronic music and sampling in the 80s make him one of the pioneers of contemporary music. He was someone who saw this so-called Western music had now become their own. Here's how he recounts it in an interview with the Red Bull Music Academy. Quote, I was born in 1947, two years after the end of the Second World War. It was a time, as in France and Germany, I guess, that a huge wave of American culture came to Japan. So I grew up with American culture. I always listened to the music on FEN, the U.S. military radio station. So almost all the music I listened to was in English. I was thoroughly Americanized. I even regretted that I wasn't American. Many of my favorite groups were from California. The psychedelic movement was happening there when I was a teenager. Groups like Moby Grape and Buffalo Springfield. A lot of legendary groups were there. I covered their songs in English. I felt their music was somehow profound. The key to their music was that they brought the essence of American roots music into their sound. That led to their originality. We realized that and thought about what our roots were. We were disconnected from our own roots. Traditional Japanese music like Shamsien or Sakuhachi, I knew nothing about it. The only clue were words. I mean lyrics in the literary sense. Novels and the language of the poets of the Taisho era were beginning to strongly influence me at that time. Though I learned the importance of roots from West Coast groups, the direct influence was from Japanese literature, especially poetry. That's my background. End quote. Hosono formed a band called Happy End in 1970, a psychedelic rock band that's considered to be the first Japanese band to sing rock music in Japanese. Although they disbanded in 1973, Happy End created the era of the singer-songwriter in Japan. Many of these bands would grow to become popular in their own right, creating trendy, well-liked songs for the youth of the 70s. And the Sugar Babe was not one of those bands. They had their debut at the Happy End Farewell concert, a good enough start. But while everyone else wanted rock, Sugar Babe insisted on doing their own thing. And people weren't ready for it. Sugar Babe singer Taiko Onuki recalls it this way, quote, Critiques from journalists about Sugar Babe were also really harsh. We were kind of hurt by that reaction. In the early 70s, there weren't bands like us. It was mostly hard rock and blues rock. We were a pop band and there was nothing like that. We once played a festival featuring a bunch of different groups, not just rock bands, but a wide variety of styles. When Sugar Babe played, the audience started throwing trash and bottles at us. They were screaming that we sounded like a bunch of cicadas. Rock artists wouldn't use major seventh chords, for example, but we would. And the audience reacted like, this is weak, go home. But if you went overseas at the time, lots of groups were doing this. Do you know the Fifth Avenue band? I loved them. They were the ideal image of what we wanted to do with Sugar Babe. But in Japan... That sound wasn't appreciated. End quote. This didn't deter the individual singers of the group. 
Although they disbanded in 1976, the individuals of the group each went solo, and that's where City Pop was born. Taiko Onoki released her album Sunshower in 1977. While not a success at first, its blend of smooth jazz, funk, and rock would become a major milestone in City Pop, and the album is a collector's item today. Another band member, Tatsuro Yamashita, a law student who decided to pursue a musical career, a man who described his musical identity this way, quote, I'm keenly aware of the fact that I'm a weirdo. I can never find my place in the Japanese music scene. I'm too soft to be rock, and I dislike Kaiokyoku because it feels too business-like. But then I also don't want to go for some sort of subculture either, nor can I go the mainstream artist route. I've never met anyone with the same ideals about music as me, so I've been forced to go at it alone. These circumstances are what led me to becoming this oddball. End quote. Yamashita wasn't happy with just doing what everyone else was. He wanted a sound that was his own. A sound that would blend his tastes, suit his voice, and inspire others to do the same. In 1978, Haruomi and Yamashita teamed up with Shigeru Suzuki to create the album Pacific. Pacific is a light, breezy album, like being on the beach or sailing the smooth seas. The different tastes of the three performers harmonized a blend of R&B, soul, and tropical tunes from Hawaii and Okinawa. Blending became an important component of city pop, a willingness to mix together different genres, images, productions, and experimentation to create the scene. It wasn't a genre as much as a vibe. It was meant to take advantage of new technology to give that feeling of walking around town or driving through the city lights of Tokyo. The new music became a multi-million dollar industry. One person who dared everything to jump into this new industry was Miki Matsubara. Born to a jazz singer mother, Miki was enamored with music from an early age. She shocked her parents and classmates by leaving school to pursue her dreams in Tokyo. I didn't give up going to college, she said, but I chose the most important thing to me, music. Miki Matsubara sang jazz standards in Birdland, a bar in the Roppongi district of Tokyo. There, she was discovered. She was given a contract, and in 1979, she dazzled the country with her now-classic Stay With Me. Stay With Me is a danceable track of heartbeat and longing. The singer pleads to her love to stay as she's knocking on his door at midnight. From the very beginning, you can hear that no expenses were spared in the production of this song. High-quality, multi-layered sounds with a hefty dose of brass instruments and a surprisingly mature voice for the then 19-year-old made the song an instant hit and shot Matsubara to stardom. Tatsuro Yamashita's next albums continued this trend of high-production, blended music. He is called the king of city pop. And in 1982, he met his queen, Maria Takeuchi. Maria Takeuchi started her career as a pop idol in the late 70s. She took a sabbatical in the early 80s, during the time she searched for a new musical direction. In the production studio, she met Yamashita. This must have been a fantastic encounter for her. She confessed to him that she was a fan of Sugar Babe. The two got married in 82 and signed on to a new record label together. It is very helpful to have a partner who can talk about music on a daily basis. I can talk about tomorrow's recording while eating rice. Maria Takeuchi joked in a later interview. In 1984, Maria Takeuchi released her wildly popular album, Variety. In that album, the song that began our episode, Plastic Love. Plastic Love is wistfully melancholic. The syncopated funky beats are a bit more subdued, dreamy, 
as Takeuchi sings about her meaningless flings in a futile effort to forget her lost love. But every encounter just reminds her of him. The song ends with the singer walking under the lonely streetlights outside the dance club with the memorable earworm sung in English, I'm just playing games, I know that's plastic love. And its reception was... Fine? Okay. A mild reception, lingering in the bottom of the charts before falling off. Nothing in 1984 anticipated the mega-hit it was going to become. The music landscape wasn't the only thing changing. Thanks to a combination of economic planning, demilitarization, and export policies, Japan emerged from the post-war devastation to becoming the third largest economy in the world, right after the US and the USSR. The 70s saw two major economic events, the oil shocks of 73 and 79 when political circumstances in the Middle East led to a rise of oil prices to... I don't even want to say what it was. The fact that that was considered high in the 70s is just depressing to hear in 2022. Anywho, the oil shocks were a major turning point for the world economy. Japan, one of the countries dependent on imported oil, still fared better than the others. The Japanese industry decided to move away from heavy industries that consumed so much fuel and decided to focus on semiconductor technology and the newly emerging field of IT and computing. Using a method called window guidance, the Bank of Japan established quotas for different industries. Technology was a major recipient of loans. That's how we get big companies having a big enough research and development division to create things like the aforementioned Walkman. The tech boom increased the number of people going to the big cities to find their luck and fortune. There was a new class of younger, affluent city dwellers and a new style of song was needed to go along with their Walkman, their car stereos, songs to accompany them in gigantic new dance clubs, melodies to accompany the neon lights as they walk home from a night of partying. City pop centered around themes familiar to the new, more affluent generation. There were tracks that both celebrated the city life, but also sketched vision of urban loneliness and alienation. As we've seen with the previous songs, behind the funky dance tracks, there was also a bit of the bittersweet. Every era of prosperity comes to an end, and 1980s Japan is no exception. And they were determined to go out with the biggest bang, or should I say pop, the modern world had seen up till then. In 1985, Japan began going in what is known as the bubble economy. The world was already feeling the ascendancy of Japan. By the early 80s, Japan dominated automobile and motorcycle manufacturing. In consumer technology, artificial intelligence, and computing, Japan was also the projected winner. There was a hefty dose of casual racism and xenophobia about the economic powerhouse of the East taking over, because of course there was. In different sectors, pressures mounted. When Ronald Reagan became president in 1980, one of the first things he did was... <clears throat> persuade Japan to limit their exports of cars and bikes to help the local American industries. The value of Japan's exports were more than their imports, creating a trade surplus with countries like the U.S. This was at a time when United States exports were just no longer competitive. Having a strong currency is great in your country, but it also makes your stuff look way too expensive in the global market. And in the 80s, the market was becoming much more global. And in the 80s, the high prices of American manufacturing goods were just not as appealing as exports from, say, Germany or Japan. 
That's what the 1985 Plaza Accords were meant to address. Meeting at the Plaza Hotel in New York, the five economic powerhouses, including Japan, discussed the quote-unquote imbalance of trade. They agreed to allow the American dollar to depreciate in value. This would make it cheaper relative to the Japanese yen and German Deutschmarks, for example, to encourage countries to buy American products. They did. It worked. But now Japan had another issue on their plate. If the American dollar was going down in value globally, the Japanese yen was going up. The seesaw of global trade just works out this way. Japan relied on export of consumer goods, and people were just buying less of it. And for a country reliant on exports, this wasn't a good situation. Now the economy turned inwards, so the Bank of Japan aimed at increasing local spending. They lowered interest rates. They dispensed loans at a much higher rate than they used to. Approval requirements were relaxed. Anyone could get a loan. Their focus was on stocks and real estate, getting people to invest in land and companies, and please tell me if any of this sounds very, very familiar. This whole process created a strange feedback loop in 80s Japan. So picture this. You want to buy a cozy little apartment in Tokyo. The bank gives you a loan. They give a loan to many other buyers too. All this buying and lending raises the land prices. So now the house you own is worth more, much, much more than it had been when you bought it. You want to take another loan. Maybe you want to open a little side business. Now the economy is going in a way where it seems lucrative to do so. And we all know the soul-draining experience of having the bank scrutinize your collaterals to see how much they're willing to give you. But hold on, your house, one of your main collaterals, has gone up in value. The one you brought at, let's say, I'm just throwing random numbers here, don't quote me on this, but let's say you bought your house at 100,000 yen, about 10k dollars, but now it's worth 500,000 yen. Your collaterals are much higher. The bank is willing to loan you a lot more now. You have a loan in 1987 you couldn't dream of just two years before. Add this to the increasing deregulation and privatization Japan was going through, and things got wild. How wild? There's a famous incident of a woman named Nui Onue. She was a restaurant owner who had a side hustle of predicting stocks using a ceramic toad. Many businessmen and investors joined her nightly fortune-telling, which proved to be pretty good most of the time. By forging a few documents here and there, she managed to get a loan of billions of yen. This one woman in her 60s with her fortune-telling frog owned more shares of the Bank of Japan than did some multinational conglomerates. She might have been the richest person in the world for a brief moment. The key word for this era is party. But don't imagine some fancy dinner party where guests are holding champagne glasses and discussing current events. This was a champagne waterfall, 10 hours of binge drinking, tie your necktie around your head and careen yourself across the city on a bender to end all benders. Pretty literally. Companies took advantage of this lone asset rising spiral to buy like they never bought before. And a fantastically large chunk of their expenses went to outings and partying. And remember, the yen is now at a stronger position than it was. So land across the world looked cheaper. Land in America looked so much cheaper. It's hard to describe the feeling at the time. People genuinely 
truly thought that Japan was poised to be the next superpower. Neither Reagan's policies nor Gorbachev's perestroika seemed to stand a chance against the insane behemoth that was the Japanese economy. In the list of top banks in the world, all were Japanese. Same with companies. If you were to trade in stocks in the late 80s, you had a better chance trading in Tokyo than New York's Wall Street. Land prices grew exorbitant. It got to a point that if you were to sell the Tokyo metropolitan area, it would be worth more than buying the entire United States. And this was felt culturally. You ever notice how US media in the 80s was obsessed with Japan? It started off early with cyberpunk like Blade Runner modeling the city off of Tokyo. But in the late 80s, a movie like Back to the Future 2 had adult Biff taking orders from his Japanese managers. The Nakatomi Plaza in Die Hard was no doubt a comment on all the buildings and estates brought up by Japanese companies, most famously the buying of the Rockefeller Center. Sushi became popular and books teaching Japanese language and etiquette flooded the business section of bookstores. Business tycoons in America, including a certain Donald Trump, raised a racket about unfair business practices. The culture reflected this frenzy. City pop, with its celebration of the good life, was cranked up to an 11. It played all over shopping malls, commercials, TV shows, and radio ads. The businessman was lionized as a new economic force that would be a model for the whole world. Then, in the early 90s, the Japanese economy, as one newspaper put it, saw itself in the mirror and was frightened. The bubble popped. Assets and prices were wiped out almost instantly. Many lost their jobs, and prospects for the next generation were so dim that the 90s were called the lost decade. Over 30 years later, the Japanese stock market has yet to reach the highs of 1987. City Pop's snazzy high production and breezy celebrations of affluence seemed hollow now. The artists still continued performing, a lot of them contributing to games and anime soundtracks. But the mainstream appetite for the music wasn't there. Record producers and audiences searched for other sounds. There's a fitting image here. Anri, a popular 80s city pop singer, sung the closing ceremony to the Nagoya Winter Olympics in 1998. The singer of such songs as Remember Sunny Days and Drive My Love now sang a melancholic old song a popular tune lamenting the loss of the old village. Real estate bubbles, unstable loans, irrational optimism. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. The US, 2008. The housing bubble pops. A bubble started in America, but the pop was heard all over the world. Economic catastrophe, credit crisis, a lost decade. Effects we're still living through. In 2009, a new genre of music emerged in the new technological field. Like city pop, it wasn't so much a genre as a cluster of visual and oral aesthetics grouped together to create a vibe. Like city pop, it reflected the cultural and technological environment it was in. The trend I'm talking about is vaporwave. It's hard to classify vaporwave exactly as a music genre. Some have gone as far as to call it trolling music, like it's some kind of elaborate prank. With increasing prevalence of sampling technology, new software that made music and video editing easier, and the rise of new streaming platforms such as YouTube, different people tried their hand at making new music. 
If the record conquered time and the Walkman conquered space, then Vaporwave collapsed both space and time. It wasn't made for the living room or for driving down the streets. It just kind of existed. Nowhere. A typical Vaporwave song would raid the past for different samples. And I'm not talking music only. There were snippets from commercial breaks, late night talk shows, jingles, and all the rest. Then they would distort and slow them down to create a deserted dream. It's a dream. But I don't mean dream in the sense of a wish or a desire like I dream of a vacation or a dream job. That was more City Pops thing. This is a dream as in the moment you're about to wake up, a groggy, hazy field where you're not sure if what you're seeing is a memory or a fantasy, but it seems to be calling you from somewhere far, far away. An iconic vaporware image is from Macintosh Plus, a bust of a Greek statue, the old Windows icon, a checkered floor, and a grainy pink-toned city from so far away. The landscape, just like the images, are lonely, desolate, having no time or space. Time had stopped. Everything exists all at once in the past. Vaporwave created a whole slew of subgenres. A lot of them condensed this dreamy longing for something lost into more concrete forms, each representing a different aspect of that dream. For example, Soviet Wave slows mixed nostalgic mellow songs with posters of Soviet space age triumph. Simpsons Wave puts music over old episode of the animated TV show The Simpsons, adding faded-out effect to make it look like a worn-out VHS. Mallwave hauntingly echoes over long-abandoned hallways of malls around North America. And most inexplicably, there's Merkelwave, a series of lo-fi beats put over the speeches of former German Chancellor Angela Merkel. I don't know... A significant new genre formed in the early 2010s was Future Funk. Artists like Macross 8299, St. Pepsi, and Youngbae took the same idea of nostalgia and added a twist to it. Future Funk used samples from disco funk and other danceable hits, then looped the catchiest part to create the feeling of a never-ending party. The images Future Funk artists used were more joyful clips from ads and old TV shows. Eventually, 1980s anime became a common image to represent this carefreeness, and city pop became a source samplers could dip into. Future Funk grew, and the algorithm searched for similar songs. It landed on the origins of these samples. One YouTuber uploaded Plastic Love with a now-famous black-and-white image of Maria Takeuchi, an image, by the way, that wasn't the original single cover. What they did was modified an old photo shoot that Takeuchi had done when she was in Los Angeles and an icon was born. People were intrigued by this image. People liked it. They uploaded and re-uploaded the song. Countless covered the song. They made instrumental versions, created their own music video, remixed the tune in different genres. Plastic Love raked millions of views despite the original video being struck down by copyright claims. And so it snowballed. In 2019, an Indonesian YouTuber, Raina Chran, uploaded her cover of Stay With Me. Thanks to the already major popularity of City Pop and her incredible work covering it, the song achieved massive viewership. Another person decided to start a TikTok trend of playing Stay With Me to their Japanese mother and checking her reaction. They say any Japanese woman of a certain age will react to the song, and this trend was tried over and over again in many different families. People wanted more, and older City Pop songs were discovered by people of a different time and place. 
In a Japanese TV show where interviewers go to the airport to ask visitors what brought them to Tokyo, they found someone excitedly saying that they were here to search for old copies of Taiko Onuki's 1977 album, Sunshower. Plastic Love rose in the charts more than 30 years after its release. It even got a music video. Maria Takeuchi herself commented on the trend in an interview. Quote, I think it's a mysterious phenomenon. When I was young, I had to dig up what my parents were listening to in order to find older music. Now, if you go on the internet, you can go back to the previous era. There may be some negative aspects to the internet, but I think there are many positive aspects when it comes to music. Otherwise, it's unlikely that many people across country and ages would pick up a song like Plastic Love 34 years ago and listen to it repeatedly. End quote. 34 years after its lukewarm reception, Plastic Love was topping the charts. Tatsuro Yamashita also noticed his audiences getting younger and younger, a trend he welcomed. Quote, yeah, it's interesting seeing how there are more and more people in their 20s and 30s in my audiences. Maybe it's how the social climate now is similar to how it was when I first got into music, right around the period when the Vietnam War was leading into the Cold War. I feel like the atmosphere today is kind of similar to how it was then. I don't know whether it's because of that, but it feels like I share the same sense of values with the younger generation. I'm more on the same wavelength with them than I am with people who lived through the bubble era, people in their 40s or so. End quote. One person who was unable to see their newfound success was Miki Matsubara. Matsubara was a staple on Japanese television. Her work ethic and perfectionism had her release hit after hit, collaborate with other artists, becoming something of a fashion icon, and starting a new band. Then, in the year 2000, Miki sent an email to her colleagues. The email said she was giving up on music and not to search for her. She had already disconnected her phone and email. Miki Matsubara had been diagnosed with cervical cancer. She blamed her lifestyle and demanding work schedule. So she chose to retire back to her hometown and live out the rest of her days with her parents. She passed away in 2004 at only 44 years old. Her father recounts how, to the end, she was still thinking of music, her life's passion. In the 2020s, it seems like city pop has gone not just global, but also mainstream. The Weeknd, an artist already very close to the future funk sphere, recently sampled a city pop song Midnight Pretenders in his song Out of Time. Korean pop music has also hopped on the trend, with newer songs from an artist Yukiko being very much in the city pop lane. The nostalgic beats and aesthetics have hit the mainstream world market. And you may have noticed, it isn't just city pop. The whole world seems to be 80s obsessed. It's been this way for a few years now. What is it behind this cultural obsession with that particular decade? One theory reassures us that this is nothing new. This happens all the time and can be explained with some market research and advertising psychology. There's an idea in the industry of the 30 year cycle. The 30 year cycle is an intuitive enough concept. You're young, you're influenced by the things around you. You feel more strongly, more intensely than possibly any other time in your life. Then you grow up, get a job, and have disposable income. In a word, become a consumer. So advertisers appeal to you and your sensibilities now. 
And they know the best way to trigger a strong emotional response is to bring back all those things that made you feel so strongly as a kid. Those action figures, the cartoons you watched, along with whatever snack was popular at that age, the games you played with your friends, even those glimpses of the adult world you snuck out to watch when everyone thought you were asleep. Then there's the flip side. Maybe you're creating content. You finished school, gotten a job in the industry, paid your dues, and now you call the shots. You're making the art now, and your artwork is informed by patterns, references, ideas, and characters that molded your sensibilities as a kid. The 30-year cycle points to other times something similar happened. These are all examples from American culture, by the way. In the 70s, people ate the style of the 50s with Greece and the return of rock and roll. In the 90s, you had a revival of 70s music and looks. That 70s show came out in the late 90s. After the 80s nostalgia wave washes away, we can predict a 90s nostalgia. And, well, as of recording, the sequel to that 70s show, that 90s show, was announced and has begun shooting. That's one theory. There is another philosophical argument about the nature of nostalgia itself. Is it necessarily so individual? Is it only about childhood influences? After all, a big chunk of city pop enjoyers today are not from Japan. And then there are deeper questions. Why are some things nostalgic and others not? What is it about specific things, specific images or sounds that haunt us from the past? There is this concept of hauntology used in cultural criticism. Hauntology theorizes that we are never truly 100% in the present. No matter how much self-help gurus will tell you to be present, it's simply impossible. The present is always informed by a past and moving towards the future. Time is out of joint, as Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet. Time is especially out of joint in feeling that gut-wrenching longing for the younger days. But when you're nostalgic, you're not nostalgic for the past only, but for what you imagined the future to be. What I mean is, when you were younger, you had a certain expectation of what the world was going to be like. Oh, I want to be a cook, an astronaut, or a kangaroo vet. I presume none of you are these things, and apology if your lucrative kangaroo vet business fulfilled all your dreams. But when you think about the past, you're not just imagining the kid you were back then, but you're also dreaming of the kind of person that kid expected you to become. This isn't what I had in mind. No one told you life was going to be this way. Scale that up, and you have nostalgia for broken promises on a societal level. Collectively, society looks at the present, thinks, this isn't how things are supposed to be. Not only that, but the future seems unclear, like it's not even there anymore. So back to the past, back to the promise of what things should have been. In this theory, the 80s specifically is a perfect target for the haunting. Why? The 80s began a global economic shift, which is usually called neoliberalism. This set of practices, including deregulation and increased emphasis on finance and banking, promised a future of growth and prosperity. It defined the luxury lifestyles of the rich and famous aesthetic that 80s media had. In this case, crisis after crisis caused by these practices, people are nostalgic for that old promise. So after the 2008 credit crisis, a music genre comes along that looks back longingly at the supposedly forever party that turned out to be shiningly, dazzlingly short. Can this be applied to vaporwave in general? I think some of the genres definitely point to this lost promise paradigm.
I mean, future funk for sure. It's in the title. The future in future funk is the future imagined by the past. The loops of the catchiest, danciest parts of the song promise you the party will never end, it will just fade out and start again in another track. But this isn't a party you're actually in. You're not in those dance clubs, not driving under the city lights. You're watching an old animation of a party that's long over. The dance club is outside of time and space. Look at the other genres too. Simpsons Wave celebrates the earliest years of the TV show The Simpsons, a show that's still going on but many fans and critics consider the newer episodes to be a sad, former shadow of its former self. Mallwave gazes longingly at empty halls of shopping malls, places which not only promise consumer happiness, but also friendship, community, and a carefree youth. Soviet Wave juxtaposes images of the space age, posters promising a bright new future of exploration and adventure, with the final Soviet days of decay and despair. And Merkel Wave? Nope, still can't explain that one. So that covers the why of City Pop's popularity. I'm also interested in the how. The twists and turns, the various complicated paths it took for a song like Plastic Love to appear in popular consciousness. How a foreign radio show had the influence on specific musicians who formed a band that was at first unpopular but then inspired a new genre of music that also coincided with social and technological changes. And then decades later, on the other side of the world, New technology and an aesthetic sensibility rummaged the storehouse of the past, found the song, and brought it back. James Burke is a science historian, with several books and documentaries that take a more unconventional view of the subject matter. He's not interested in the linear developments, you know, the typical story. There's a research, others pick it up, they work on it, it's proven, and now you have a discovery. Burke wants to drive through these crazy turns, the unexpected contingency, the weird accidents that led to discoveries. In keeping with the 80s theme, one of the names James Burke gives this is the pinball effect. Quote, We all live on a great, dynamic web of change. It links us to one another and, in some ways, to everything in the past. And in the way that each of us influences the course of events, it also links us to the future we were all busy making every second. No matter how remote all these links may seem over space and time, they are real. No person acts without causing change on the web. Each one of us has an effect somewhere, somewhen. Everybody contributes to the process. In some way, everything we do makes history because we are history. The web is an expression of our existence, all of those who went before us, and all who will come after us. In every case, the journeys presented here follow unexpected paths, because that's how life happens. We strike out on a course only to find it altered by the action of another person somewhere else in space and time. As a result, the world in which we live today is an end product of millions of these kinds of serendipitous interactions happening over thousands of years. The web can be imagined as a gigantic and ever-growing sphere in time and space, made up of millions of interconnecting, crisscrossing pathways, each one of which is a timeline. At the center of the web is the ancient beginning, the surface of the sphere, expanding and growing as every moment goes by, is the modern world. End quote. I like this idea. Creativity, whether art, science, or technology, isn't a linear blueprint that people plan, manage, and execute. 
dream it and achieve it is just not how most innovation happens. There are accidents, unexpected discoveries, wanderings that stumble onto something, chance encounters, and a million weird little coincidences that all happen to line up perfectly. I'm not saying it's all luck, but any creative work also needs to be open to these weird little coincidences in order to dig in and find something new. It needs to follow the currents and see where it ends up. We talked earlier about the technological changes that defined how we listen to music. Technology also defines what music we listen to. From the curated playlists of the radio DJs to the record, cassette, or CD stores that help you curate your own list. And now we have streaming services with a vast library of music and other content. A library that's larger than any we've seen before. And in this infinite library, finding music is overwhelming. So the latest technology the series of algorithms that choose what content you might like. There is heated debate about the nature of the algorithm and what it does on various social media platforms, but I'm thinking more about what the algorithm is. The actual process is a trade secret, and different companies make their own calculation. Generally speaking, the system will look at what you've listened to, what others with similar taste profiles have listened to, and make predictions for what you might also like. Think of Amazon's people who bought this product also bought. It seemed like just a few years ago, the algorithm was crude, to say the least. The people who bought this product list on Amazon would give laughable results. People who bought Karl Marx's The Capital Volume 3 also bought socks. It's the same crudeness that probably allowed plastic love to slip into so many people's recommended pages. Remember the comments earlier? along the lines of, why was this recommended to me? But anyway, I like it. And every once in a while, I'd get recommendations that seemed to have nothing to do with what I was watching. And comments on those videos would also joke, oh, the algorithm is at it again. These days, it seems to happen a little less. On other platforms too. The technology is learning, growing, and becoming more accurate in recommendations. And that's great. It's great to be able to find what you want with minimal hassle. But if the algorithm is too good, something gets lost. Sure, it can statistically determine what you might like based on what you've listened to before and what other people with similar tastes also enjoy. But like, even now, City Pop has become part of the infinite loop of recommendations. So much so that the joke is that City Pop and Future Funk are YouTube recommendation core as the algorithm now skews towards that style. And just repeating more of the same, I think, we lose what made the song so appealing in the first place. That's a common curse in art. Something gets popular, others copy it, the copies overtake the market, people get sick of it. The infinite library can create a feeling of exhaustion, that it's all been done before, nothing really new can happen. And in this library, you have a small light shining in one room only, with the rest still left in the dark. Can anything new happen when things are this stifling? Taeko Onuki expresses the sentiment about the state of music from the same Red Bull Academy interview. Quote, Back then, we copied a lot of music we liked. That's how we'd start. Listening back, it's unbelievable to think that we were all just 20-year-olds, because of how good everything sounds. Well, except the singing. I wrote the songs and it was fine. But making the sound of the album was exciting. For instance, we would create those long outro sections for songs, segments that were unusually long. But I loved making the music. 
Maybe because there weren't that many singer-songwriters back then, it felt like a new thing I was trying out. There were these gaps that weren't filled up by any rules. I was able to experiment with interesting ideas back then, and I feel lucky I could do that. Now, you can't do that. Those gaps have been filled. I think it's kind of sad, because artists can't play around and experiment as much. That's what it seems like, at least. End quote. Haruomi Hosono has a different point of view. In his Red Bull Academy interview, he said, quote, I know it's a really difficult thing. Japan has changed drastically since World War II. There's no longer people who would inherit our traditions. Some professional singers sing folk songs and ballads. We still have genres of standard Japanese pop and enka as well. These booms have been cooling down and suffering from talent shortages. I think that such things are going on around the world. Despite this situation, some young people have decided to pass these traditions down to the future. Everyone has to manage everything by itself without a system. They're expected to accomplish something individually by their instinct. So a person who has talent tries everything, trying to work on a traditional music and techno as well. I like this free chaotic state in Japan. I can't wait to see the new creation in Japan. End quote. This chaos is what we're talking about here. It might be easy to find what you currently like, but what about what you might like? You listen to rock, you love rock. You find singers that have similar tastes to the music you like. Other people listen to rock and you get the songs that they like too. But what if you might enjoy a classical piece, Mongolian throat singing, Bulgarian choirs, an artist with a new spin on an old genre, or heaven forbid, what if you might actually enjoy Merkel Wave? Being less prone to error means less flukes, less bizarre recommendations that can get you into something new. And that's a big loss, I'd say. So let's celebrate the flukes, the accidents, the strange hiccups, wherever we can. Because those are the avenues of creativity. Knowing exactly all the paths the pinball can take, having a razor-sharp accuracy with the flippers, always landing on the high scores, hitting the targets accurately, that might make you a good player. But where's the fun in that? Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next episode.